How's everybody doing? It's uh, great to have everybody here. Um, we are here today to talk about the opportunity cost of payment lag in music, um, which is something that is very difficult to discuss, but something that's very easy to feel if you're working in the music industry. It really touches every corner of our business. And uh, at a time when almost everything else has gone to real time, artists are putting up more releases than ever, they're promoting that music in real time through social and short form video, all these different things, the payment side of things is often still stuck in the past. So I'm excited to be talking with our esteemed panelists today about what we're doing to address this challenge, which in so many ways is an invisible drag on artist growth and innovation across our business. I am Will Griggs. I am the Chief Experience Officer at HiFi. Uh, we are the financial rights organization for the music industry, and we build financial technologies to try and make the financial side of the music business work better for artists and their teams including a service that we just announced down here in Austin called Hi-Fi Cashflow that is uh, paying artists their royalties from across the market in real time. And we just opened up our wait list yesterday, so I would love to talk to anyone interested in that. Um, with that, I will let uh, the rest of the panel introduce themselves, and I will pass it to my right. Hey, everyone. I am Toki Monster. I am a musician and DJ. I'm also the CXO of Sona Stream. Um, I make music, I play it out, and I just co-founded a tech startup that is trying to pay out value-driven pay for musicians uh, based on their streaming rights, and yeah. Awesome, uh, can you guys hear me? How's it going, everybody? My name's Tony Brown. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Breaker. Uh, we basically have built an operating system that all the major record labels kind of sit their operations on top of when they're trying to deploy capital to creators. So gone are the days where you have to pay out creators on Venmo and Cash App and PayPal and try to get around Uniport. Uh, gone are the days where you're using Excel spreadsheets and PDFs to be able to track all of this stuff. Uh, gone are the days where SZA or Beyonce releases a song uh, globally and you have 15, 20 agencies globally working on it, but no way to actually track it in real time, know when you need to double down in certain regions. Breaker has created an end-to-end -end SaaS platform um, that allows record labels to really control that spending uh, a lot more effectively. In my free time, um, I manage a kid named Charlie on a Friday. Um, I will not sing the song and like, you know, that made him viral as hell, but uh, I will tell you guys that it has been a very passionate experience for me. Uh, we met Charlie when he had about 700 followers on Instagram, he has about 2 million on TikTok now, 50,000 streams, 150 million streams worldwide, uh, independent, now signed with Universal Music Group. So I've seen that inflection point um, from kind of obscurity to the majors, and I've seen how the delays and payments have affected him personally along that journey. Um, so I'm looking forward to telling you guys about that. But my name's Tony Brown. It's a pleasure to meet everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the introductions. Uh, and my name is Will Page, uh, author of the book Tarzan Economics. And prior to that was the chief economist of PRS Music, the equivalent of ASCAP or BMI over here, for six years. And then went on to become the chief economist of a Swedish company called Spotify for the best part of a decade. And I've worked sort of the front edge of applying economics to music and well-placed to understand the trials and tribulations the creators are feeling with payment lags in music. Well, thank you guys all for being here. Um, I'm going to start with some specific questions for you guys. Um, I'm going to start with Toki. You know, you wear a lot of hats. You know, you are the CXO at Sona. 
Um, you are also the leader of Young Art Records. A lot of folks know you as a Grammy-nominated producer, artist. A lot of folks know you as a DJ. Um, but to set the table, can you share an example, whether it's from your work as an artist or artists that you've worked with in other capacities where there was a specific compromise that had you know, to happen uh, simply because there was a weight to access the revenue or the earnings that an artist had already um, earned but had not yet been paid? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of examples where you see... Um, artists struggling because of pay in general, right? It's very hard to be a creative and also make enough money to support yourself and then further pursue your creative passions. Um, a specific example that comes to mind for me are artists that are trying to self-release. To self-release, you need capital. You can't, if you, there's no money, then you can't really self-release. So to be even more specific, let's say you're an artist that had signed a record label deal. And it could be small or big, independent or not, but there is that payment lag where, let's say you wanna break free of that system, and I know right now it's very popular to be an independent artist, I'm an independent artist. And I like owning my IP, so a lot of artists that want to then own their IP, they decide, I don't wanna do this anymore, I wanna do it on my own, I think I could really make it with my own skills, et cetera but they're waiting for their money from their labels. And it's such a convoluted uh, system that exists that they'll never have enough money to maybe put out that release on their own. Um, or they have to do subsidiary, like other ancillary things, like they need to pick up an extra job or they need to do something else. And in that process, they might end up then signing another really shitty record deal <laughs> to then put out their music because they're so desperate to put on music, but then there just are no efficient ways to do so. And that's what I think is really disappointing because I think artists really should have the ability to control their career and not be sucked into a system that's constantly taking advantage of them. Yeah, and, and talking about taking control of your career, Tony, to kick it to you, I mean, in a past life that wasn't so long ago, you were an investor at Acumen, at Goldman. Um, what about the space that Breaker occupies um, was you know, enough of a draw for you to leave that, you know, sort of career behind and jump into entrepreneurship, um, you know, and what are some of the wins that you saw as indicators to lead you down that path? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wish my brother was here. Um, he was a software engineer at Adobe um, for about five or six years. Uh, but on his free time, him and his friends, who are also my co-founders, they actually used to throw parties all around the country. So Ad Week, Super Bowl, All-Star Weekend. And the thing that kept coming up uh, it was like independent artists and labels would actually come to them and try to get the DJ to spin the song. And I was like, man, and you know, if you understand hip hop at all, a, a part of the culture is getting the DJs to spin it in the clubs. Um, and so we were like, well, we got to be able to put some technology into this, you know. So, you know, very naively, we went down that path and then uh, the pandemic hit. <laughs> uh, so you went through the stages of grief uh, where you actually were like, man, OK, well, I guess we got to still be investors and coders. Um, and then there's article came out. And the article was so powerful, and my TikTok friend can appreciate this. Uh, independent music doubled in the first three weeks of the pandemic post-lockdown. So it went from 40,000 songs a day to like 70,000, 80,000 songs a day, primarily driven by independents. But even labels were releasing a little bit more frequently than they historically had. And I'm like, man, well, that type of market saturation, how are you going to, if you have that many 
pieces of bread and from different companies coming on the shelf, like distribution isn't just getting it to the shelf anymore. It's actually like, how do you get it into the hands of consumers? And so I looked at the workflow, my brother and I, that we had built for the offline DJ business. And we're like, man, like the escrow system, how can you have millions of transactions? Well, you actually have to hold the capital in escrow because he's not going to promote anything unless there's a third party between them. But as long as, as long as he knows my card was charged, I know he'd write the check. And so we started out by like literally testing the workflow with small independent artists like Charlie and major, you know, influencers. And it worked. We were making like forty, fifty thousand dollars a month. And, you know, we started doing big activations. We worked with Rolling Loud, did some big competitions. And then the labels came. And when the labels came, I realized that our workflow wasn't actually strong enough to support that. Where Charlie's coming in to buy one independent influencer, uh, you know, Epic Records, uh, you know, Universal Music Group, all of these companies, Sony, Warner, like they're coming in to buy 50, 100. And then TikTok's algorithm actually stopped rewarding the Charlie D'Amelios of the world and they started rewarding micro communities. And so technology was actually the only way that you can activate 10, 15, 20, 100 creators at a time. And so the, the industry changing just kind of forced me into it. And, you know, we wound up processing like $3 million to creators' hands over the past year, you know. Um, and I think what came from that was like all the efficiencies. And we can get into the weeds on that. But we basically said, man, what does it look like for us to give the login to the labels? And what does it look like to automate the process end to end? So it was like a passion kind of got us there. And pain actually got us to the point where we are now. And, you know, as we get further and further into the weeds here, Will, from your perspective, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the work that you did for years as the chief economist at Spotify, with PRS, with some of your current projects, you know, from your perspective, very simply, I mean, so much of the 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 data, the earnings, everything is digital. It's all online. From your perspective, why is this still such a big challenge? It seems obvious if people were still going to record stores to buy physical products with cash. That's not happening today. It's all happening instantly through the internet. Why is this still such a giant challenge? Well, as we get into the weeds, let's imagine, let's imagine I'm going to send a letter from my hands to your home address. If you think about how the postal service works, you've essentially got two mechanisms at play. You've got the process time, that letter arrives at the sorting office, bundling, preparing it, circulating it. Then you've got the distribution frequency. How often does that postman or postwoman go out to deliver that mail? And that is where you can see the problem in music. So in music, if you think about it as an artist, if you had a song that broke on Spotify, Apple today, mid-March, we're looking at roughly speaking six months before the money gets through to you. So that's interesting. And that's the time it takes for the invoicing, the accounting periods, the matching of the ISRC codes, and then the payment flow out to the artist. If you're a songwriter, I would put it down as, I tried to calculate this, July 2024 is when you're gonna see your check. Now if you're struggling to pay rent, let's just deal with the necessities of life, waiting that long isn't helping you out. So I think. That's where you have the problem. It's the time it's taken to process these payments and the frequency of distributing. One extreme example, there's one collecting society I worked out in Europe, Boomer, won't name it, in Holland, which takes 19 months to process the statements and distributes once a year. And you can do the math. That means we could be looking at two and a half, close to three years before the money finally gets through. In 2023, it just seems absurd. An Uber driver can cash out now. Connecting all that detail of travel, surge pricing, all that minutiae detail, and they can cash out now. 
Whereas you are waiting six months as an artist, a year and a half as a songwriter to see that check. I think that's, to understand those two dynamics, those two cogs in the system, that gets you close to where the problem is. And, um, you know, to get into the Wayback Machine for a second, we were talking earlier about Radiohead's uh, In Rainbows, you know, that groundbreaking approach to releasing an album and allowing artists, uh, sorry, allowing the artist fans to pay what they want directly. Can you break down some of the lessons and, you know, some of the reasons why maybe that, you know, was a bit of an anomaly and not the norm today? Sure. Um, still the professional highlight of my career was working with Radiohead in 2007, which seems a long time ago. You could be breaking bands a long time ago. that were born after In Rainbow <laughs> soon. Um, but still, to work with that band there and to stress my book, Guitars and Economics, the band actually for the first time ever tell the full story. But the key part of this is for the tip jar model, where they said, if you like our album, give us a tip. And if you want to pay nothing, you can still take it for free. If you want a tip, you can tip whatever you like. And some people are tipping thousands. But the tip jar model, they reclaimed all of their rights. They had no PRS, they withdrew their rights from the collecting society, they controlled their own publishing, and they had no record label. And that meant that the tip jar used a credit card payment system. So literally, if a Brazilian was to donate five British pounds for In Rainbows, it was there in 72 hours, and that was 2007. Where are we now? That's why that is a lesson in history. Yeah, and we're not just here to point out the problems. You know, We're all up here because we're doing our best to work on some solutions. Um, you know, in the case of Hi-Fi um, and uh, Hi-Fi cash flow, we're really looking at the payments uh, options that artists have today and trying to add something new to the market, which is paying artists every day as they're earning those royalties, which does a couple of things. On the one hand, versus uh, you know, a large advance, which is a speculative bet you know, against your future success, um, we feel that getting paid every day allows artists to grow with us over time and they also are able to hold on to their optionality because you don't have to be tethered to a specific distributor or a specific partner to work with us and our cash flow service. But I wanted to kick it to Toki to share a bit about Sona, which I know a lot of people are really excited about and have, have been tracking. Um, you know, Sona is setting out to create an entirely new revenue stream for both artists and their supporters and their fans. What can you share today? I know that you guys are working on a lot behind the scenes, but what can you share today about what your team is building and you know, if there are any takeaways from these early learnings or early use cases um, as you guys continue to, to build and ship? Yeah, so Sona is a couple things. It's, it's a client and it's a protocol, right? So on the client side, we are not reinventing the wheel, it will have a streaming component to it. The thing that's different is how we're thinking about how we pay our artists, and I mentioned this earlier when I was like bumbling on my introduction. Um, we're trying to d create value-driven pay for artists, right? So we know that Spotify is kind of cost the same, like all the streaming platforms have like a really stable price. It costs the same whether it is pro rata or it's a pay per stream. That doesn't count the f or it doesn't really consider inflation, right? So if you're getting paid, you know, a percentage of a cent per stream, it's, we already knew that was kind of low to begin with, but then now it's even lower, right? So how are you supposed to live as a musician doing that? Now we have to end up on TikTok, which I love to consume. I don't want to really be on it. You know, I want to be a musician. And I see that for my peers. Like, what if you're in a band with 10 other people and you're trying to make a living? And even if they're streaming high numbers and you guys all know who they are, they're still splitting that between 10 members and they can't survive. 
So we're trying to figure out uh, a different way to support artists, a different way to, to pay. Um, I don't know if right now is the best time for me to go into detail, but we are trying to work out a different system that's completely different than what we're doing without completely disrupting the, the music industry as a whole. So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to share a little bit more, but the main thing is it would be nice for musicians to make money off their music, survive doing that, and not have to also be an influencer on the side or have to tour heavily. Because I know for me as a musician, the reason why I'm able to feed myself and do okay is because I tour heavily. But do I think that other artists want to tour as heavily as me? Or if someone's a band or you know they're in a genre that doesn't, that's not as conducive to heavy touring, how are they gonna survive even if they make better music than me? And lots of people make better music than me, right? So. I mean, no, I mean, I got cool glasses on, but I mean, we could be real here. You know, there's so many talent. Like, one of you guys might be the best musician to ever live, but how are we going to hear your music if you don't have the capital to do so? And that's really important. And so with Sona, we're trying to figure out a different model that, you know, all the existing platforms can kind of use, and that's the protocol side. So we're hoping that, like, the Spotify's, Apple Music's, the record labels can plug into what we're creating to create a new revenue stream for musicians. And yeah. And, and one thing that I think is really powerful about what you just laid out is this idea of building new elements that play nicely within the way people already are building their careers. It's not replacing something, it's not tearing down something else to build up your thing. It's a new layer that is gonna create new revenue without artists or their partners having to completely unscramble the eggs of how they've built a career to this point. I also want to mention too this idea of direct an artist directly creating a relationship with their fans and their audience. You know, when if I'm spending all of my Apple, Spotify, title money on I'm just going to say Beyonce. So I'm spending all of my time listening to Beyonce, but she's not going to know that I spent 100% of all my streaming on her. But with the new models and the new technology that we have coming out now, you can be like, they can know that it's you. And you can know that they're seeing that you're contributing all your streaming and that percentage of your streams to your favorite artists. And that's really important. And that's the new age that we're, we're kind of approaching right now where you can really have this relationship with the artist. The artist can show their gratitude towards you as a listener and create new kind of uh, relationships, avenues for supporting each other, reward systems, so on and so forth. Love it. And I mean, Tony, with Breaker, you guys similarly are creating a, a, a more efficient way to create those connections and to allow folks that can create value for each other to connect, you know, versus again, trying to, to you know, completely reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, let's just like, I'll paint a picture. An artist connects with an influencer through Breaker, and you guys do your job, yep. and the influencer does their job, yep. and this thing goes viral. Do, are most independent artists able to take advantage of that opportunity and step through the door that you guys have opened? Not at all. Unfortunately, like, you know, let's just use the Charlie case study. It's like when he went viral, ideally all of the capital that he was making from that virality he would have had instantly because then we would have been able to instantly reinvest that back into influencers back into more viral moments back into you know touring etc turn the merchandise engines on 
we didn't see that stuff for like six months, you know? Um, and so, you know, you look at the kid and he's like 19 years old and he has expenses, he has a life, he has desires, he has dreams, and then the labels start knocking. What do you think he's gonna do, you know? Um, now, luckily for him, the thing I will say that on a more positive note is that, where, and where Breaker sees itself, is that the algorithm at TikTok is so sensitive that if you can strike it enough times, right, with very thoughtful hit pings on certain creator groups, you increase your shots on goal to be able to at least have leverage when you go into the label system, right? So I think Sound On um, is a very interesting program because it's like, okay, cool, like, let's go find all of these long tail artists, let's bring them into a collaborative environment, let's run the campaigns, let's ping the algo. Now when those kids go viral, when you go into negotiate that label deal and they're upstreaming those kids, you're keeping masters, you know, they're not touching publishing, less 360, and so I think that technology, like, you know, TikTok's ability and now Reels as well and Shorts, like, to create serendipity at scale actually does put the power back into the artist. If payments catch us up to that, where creators can connect directly with creators, um, serendipity at scale is happening, money's coming back instantly, that shifts the tides a little bit systemically to where it's like, Maybe I only need a distribution deal, you know? Maybe I only need a little bit of marketing support to take this album out. And I think when you see that flip, um, I think the music industry will change. And, and maybe it's going so slow because that world isn't a world that the power that bees uh, wants to see. But I think Breaker is just playing its part um, in triggering those like moments, you know, um, pretty authentically. Yeah, and, and something that you just touched on in terms of, you know, artists really having these very hybrid um, set of partners, you know, because if you have things that you're releasing independently, you have that moment, maybe it's connected through Breaker, uh, you're approached by a label, you do a label deal, but you have some things that are independent. You might have 10 songs and try different distributors for each of them because right now there isn't a real, you know, sort of barrier of entry for a lot of these options. And, you know, for an artist to see what the best option for them might be and do a bit of window shopping seems like the, you know, the smart thing. But the other side of that coin, the other side of that optionality is keeping track of all of it, which is really where we started was, you know, allowing artists and their teams to understand and tell stories with the data from their earnings so they could understand how their strategic decisions impacted their bottom line. Um, but it's just really interesting that, you know, that sort of complex constellation, that optionality, you know, is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned at the top of this, you know, this topic, it's not really as much of a hot button topic or an issue because it feels so abstract. Um, but Will, and I don't expect you to come up with exact numbers on the spot, though if anyone could, it would be you. But, you know, where do we begin to feel the true opportunity cost of this, the, of the payment lag in terms of the success that didn't happen, the opportunities that were stifled and those flames that were snuffed out too soon, you know, where do we begin to quantify that? How would, how would you think about that? And before I come into that, I just want to build on a quick point Tony mentioned when you talked about forming a collective or a collaboration of artists. And this goes as far back as I spotted this in Sweden in 2011, the scale of collaborations and featuring happening in the music business. It's a great example of show and business. From an artistic perspective, it might be a great idea for me to collaborate with you. From a gaming the algorithm perspective, it's a golden idea to trigger that algorithm. So we're seeing more and more features and collaborations, which is great, 
but it means more and more complexity when it comes to managing the money flow. In terms of opportunities for gone from this, I just build out again on the rhythm of Tony's talk there. It's just one thing I've learned about streaming is it's so much about momentum. Mm -hmm. And these audiences today are unforgiving if you drop out of momentum. You know, they used to say the album was the climax. Now I call it the conclusion. It's you're saying to your fans, that's all I've got. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll move on. You know, when you went into the studios to make an album for two years, people like anticipation, what are they going to come back with? Now they think you're on holiday. So it's the mindset of the fans have changed, the mindsets of the bands have changed. And I think about the great British hope in the music industry just now is a TikTok sensation. And she comes from my home country of Scotland, Inverness, Katie Gregson McLeod, a song called Complex. I mean, that song broke three years ago on TikTok, mm -hmm. went down the major label route. Where's the juice? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm still waiting. So if you get a strike as an independent artist and you can get that cash quickly, maybe you earn 20,000, maybe you can invest that as capital in a PR company to make another 20,000 even faster. So I just stress the role of momentum in this business is unforgiving. And there are mental health concerns that we can't be naive to, but you know, it's not like the old world of just disappearing to the studio and your fans are waiting for you to come back. It doesn't work like that anymore. You need that cash now to grow now. And I want to make it clear, because it might seem like, you know, this is some, in some way like an anti-label panel. It's not. We have someone who runs the label. We have someone, you know, I, I ran a record label for 10 years. There's, yeah, yeah, Tony's Arts assigned to a label. There is so much value to those relationships. Um, and in many cases, that is the best path for artists. What we're talking about here really is creating a new path for the artists that want to remain independent, either full, like, for the full career or for longer than possible to raise their own value, to create leverage, and really to pull you know, imagery from Will's book, Tarzan Economics, give them a different op option to swing from the vine they're holding to the vine in front of them in a way that allows them to maintain their independence and their optionality. But I just wanted to clear that up. We're not here just to bash my, labels. My whole, <laughs> my whole business is supported by the record industry. It's, it's, uh, the prop, by the way, when you talk to them about these problems, they agree. Right? Mm -hmm. They're like, they don't love Uniport, they hate Uniport. Anyone who has interacted with a Universal Music Group, okay? Can I just say, old gray hair <laughs> yeah, that, that, came that, from dealing with Uniport. Yeah, that, that system, they don't love the system, but it's, the, it's what they have, right? And so I think innovators, uh, when you're thinking about that, it's like, okay, meet them where they are. You know what the constraints are, and I think it's up to innovators to meet them right where their legacy systems lead off to pick up and take it from there. And I, I just see a world where... There are just millions and millions and millions of independent artists, millions and millions of creators, millions of brands, legacy labels interacting in one centralized Switzerland. And like the only way that you can do that is direct to direct. And you have to have payment innovation around that or else it will be a hyper fragmented ecosystem that continues to op. And like, by the way, you know who wins in the environments where like music or money moves like friction heavy? It's, it's agencies, it's the middlemen, it's these ancillary adjacent industries that find those gaps, they figure out where those friction points are and then they embed themselves and now you're talking 20, 30, 40% fees to be able to take away the pain that an independent artist is feeling. You know, um, loan sharks are a real thing. They took advantage of those friction points and so like to me, I view the middleman as the problem um, and I, it's, it's not these legacy systems, it's the middleman and you have to, the only thing that can solve that is technology, period. In Scotland, we say they take a lot of cream off your milk. 
a mean, lot. <laughs> even to to speak on your point to the the music industry right now is just very entrenched in old systems, yes. and what we're seeing is a turnover of also. I could say maybe like the older executives might just like it the way that it was, but we are seeing a turnover of like, you know, um, you know, bright-eyed, fresh, new, progressive thinking executives that want to treat their artists better. Because at the end of the day, the label serves a purpose. Independent musicians have their own purpose as well. And there's certain things that a label can give you that an independent artist can, cannot provide for themselves, depending on who you are. So really, if we create these systems that speed up the, the payment process so that artists can finally get what they deserve in a timely manner, labels really benefit from it a lot too. Because like the labels at this point don't want to rip off artists because then they're leaving in droves. You know, They're not going to stay. They're like, I can just DIY this whole situation myself. So at the end of the day, like, you know, there's distribution you know, deals that you can have. You can have like boutique label deals where you're not signed to anything, but they give you label services. There's labels themselves. But all we're trying to do right now is, like you mentioned, like, get rid of that middleman, automate it with technology that's available right now so that everyone just gets paid faster. And then we get to hear way more amazing music you know, and then people also get to complete their ideas. Cause like, well, you're mentioning someone could have an, an amazing project, but they're just shelved. Yep. You know, and that's a big thing with that happens at labels too, is that you're shelved for a while and your music doesn't come out. So and just, just wanted real, to add that. Real quick, again, to reiterate, it's not label bashing, collecting society bashing, publish. They know where the problems are. Yeah. And there's some solutions there, like Sony now has a cash out now facility. But if you go back to my postal office example, you know, distributing cash out instantly is part of the story. You still got to process the payments. Yeah. If the letter's not ready to go in the postman's bag, it ain't getting delivered, even if the postman's going out. Yeah. So keep those two cogs in mind. But then the real point here is I can tell this room that one dollar in every ten leaving Spotify today is going to DIY artists, largely DistroKid. Mm -hmm. So a tenth of the recorded music industry doesn't involve record labels. We're not talking about a small piece of the puzzle here. This is a huge audience address. And to wrap it up, one of the most craziest stats of lockdown I learned was one in three songs released on planet Earth last year came from DistroKid, a company with 78 staff, including the two office cleaners, <laughs> responsible for a third of all musical repertoire. So this problem is addressing a huge population. And, and for those artists that are you know, comprising that trend, you know, those independent artists who are doing it themselves, you know, the dollar that they're earning today is worth much more to them right now than it will be when they get it as it naturally flows through the mechanics of the industry. Um, and on the topic of labels, you know, Toki, you're the only person that I've ever met who has, you know, been signed to an independent label, Brain Feeder, been signed to a major label via Ultra and Sony, and currently, you own your own label. Um, can you share a bit about how those different setups, uh, you know, impacted your experience, um, both as an artist and you know a label owner? Um, you know, some of the contrasts of how you know you were, uh, you know, dealing with those different sort of structures. Yeah, you know. Um a lot of the decision making I make now is obviously based off of a lot of experience. So, um, you know, being on a major label, being on an independent label, being on a label that you own, that you release on, um, they all have pros and cons. So I can start off with 
Ultra, so which is basically owned by Sony. Uh, at the time that I put that album out, it was the most I've ever gotten paid as an advance. But an advance, as you guys know, is essentially kind of like a loan, and you do have to recoup that. I will never own those songs that I put out on that label. I think, ever. Lewis? No. Yeah. I probably, very likely, I will never own that. And for me, um, IP is incredibly important. Like, I really think that as an artist, you should own the things that you make. You know, um, if you decide to sell your, you know, catalog and stuff, make, sell for a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? So, that was great in that it facilitated a lot of the ideas that I wanted to, and they had the infrastructure that I wouldn't have been able to provide for myself. But I will never own those, and you know, I have to say goodbye to those songs in some ways. Um, Brain Feeder was something that was so pivotal to me because it really set the tone for who I was as an artist. Um, but then it's kind—it was kind of like a friend deal. So there's complications there as well. There, they lacked infrastructure. The payment was very, very slow. It was very messy, and. There are, you know, murky waters when you're assigning something to a friend and, like, what do you agree on? Some things that are misunderstood or understood on, in a different way because you guys are friends with each other. And, you know, there's um, benefits that are outside of numbers, and it got a little murky. And then I decided I don't really need to do either of those things. I decided to start my own label and release my music that way. And it's not truly... Independent, because you know you can be an artist that doesn't even use your own labels. But I did it so that I could create value for this label by releasing my music on it, then using that label to uplift other artists that I truly believe in. And this label does not make me a whole lot of money. It's just something that I use to prop up musicians so that they can do bigger and better things after they release on my label. And that's really important for me. Um, and for us too, because of the struggles I have as an artist, I know that it really sucks when you don't own your IP, it sucks when you don't get paid on time. So it's very important for me as a label owner to make sure that we're very efficient with all of those things and that there isn't a bunch of bureaucracy. The artist can speak to me directly. You know, we have access to our accounting. People get paid out as fast as we can, as fast as we can, essentially, you know? And that's just something that's really important to me. But each of those, roles or each of those methods really had a lot of good things and some things that were not as amazing. And even now as, an, as a label owner, I'm not against releasing on a label, like another label. I, I will still consider that. And there are benefits to me releasing on another label that would be far more advantageous than me releasing on my own. So yeah, options are available for everyone. Yeah, and it's really clear even just by hearing you describe the relationship to those songs that are still, you know, tied in with Ultra, just how personal the experience of releasing music is. And when you're an artist and your career is really, the, you know, bound to the art that you put out into the world in such a, a personal way, um, it really has, you know, a, an obvious emotional impact. And, you know, artist fatigue is something that I'm glad we're talking about more now than ever. Um, I think that the fact that this sort of ongoing pressure that's put on artists based on the fact that they always feel a step behind financially um, plays into that in a very direct way. Um, you know, sort of the hyper-competitive hamster wheel of 
maintaining a ongoing presence with the attention economy, um, what, how are you guys seeing those things related? You know, there's the emotional side of it, but in terms of the financial side of it, how does that impact that artist fatigue? Yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, the, the artist fatigue thing is a real thing. Um, my artist, Charlie on a Friday, um, he is not just a music artist. He is literally an influencer, you know? Um, in the sense that, not in like he's trying to make content to make money, but in that there's an inextricable connection between content creation and streams, right? And so the TikTok algorithm, he doesn't need a boss. The algorithm becomes his boss, right? Um, and so the consistency at which he posts, um, the, the quality of the posts, the, the frequency, the cadence, and understanding the pockets, really studying the platform becomes this thing that this Gen Z generation, unfortunately, of artists have to navigate. And like, you know, I, I feel like in a world where, you know, say he was independent and say he had other streams of income coming from his music, his merch, his touring, et cetera, maybe doesn't feel as much pressure to like constantly push on the algorithm as much as he needs to. And so like I see that up close and personal. Um, and I know that there are other artists, uh, I won't say the names, but it's like, you know, they develop like these cult followings and they actually don't even use social media. You know, like there's a good, you know, another example is like Yeet. Like you look at him, like he doesn't really use social media. I mean, but the guy's a rock star and he has a cult following. It's like, how do, how do we get more artists to that point where they're like not so dependent on the algorithm to drive their stuff? So then creativity becomes a part of it. Like what is he doing that's so unique that's driving these people insane to like support his life financially? So I think it's like, figuring out a little bit like hey like what do i need to do to build direct fanship you know like one thing we're doing we're building an app right where he's literally going to take all that momentum from tiktok and bring it right into his own rolodex we're using like the the text messages apps like we're building 50,000 you know if if the algorithm is the thing now man if you have 50,000 people who will do anything that you ask them to do hey guys i'm about to release my new song go check it out it's this is the goal for the like the 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 vibe and go have some fun with the sound. Now 50,000 people or 20,000 people went and did a unique thing. Now suddenly it's not so dependent on the artist to be creating viral moments. It's like community is triggering the algo to be able to like drive that. And so like that was like a part of like Breaker's new infrastructure. It's like, well, if it's all about people and like mass amounts of nano and micro people, well, well what does it look like to be able to go hit 10,000 people at one time with a challenge? What does it look like to go hit five? And that's where like our platform came from. So like just seeing him so dependent on having to trigger his moments kind of made me on the back end start to innovate and say like, okay, how do we do this thing at scale, right? Um, and I think the less that they're required to post, the better their mental health will be. The more income they have to do other things like that, the less requirements they are on TikTok, on Instagram, et cetera, so. Just looking forward here, where is this all going to take us? The, the, the fickle nature of the fan, the frequency demands on the artist. I remember a debate we had with the, the team at Spotify way back in 2011-12 when we were launching in the US. Is, is, was it Mark Twain who said, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes? When you look at the origins of Motown as a record label, I do wonder whether what Motown did back then is kind of where we're going to now. Motown never signed Jackie Wilson to put out an album. No, 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 no. I'm saying you to knock out hits and keep yeah. them coming. And if you yeah. do that many hits, maybe there's an album. But 
that single not saying it's a desirable outcome, but I, I, I do ask the audience to think about what Motown did and ask whether they can see that. And then just in terms of solutions as well, just very quickly, I'm very fond of saying any more than one dashboard is one dashboard too many. Artists like yourself do not have time to navigate a Spotify dashboard, an Apple dashboard, a YouTube dashboard. It's toast. Go home. Do not pass go. Do not collect <laughs> not 200 pounds. <laughs> you just need one dashboard. So when I see what Hi-Fi is doing, and there's other companies in the space too, but just that's, that's a problem that needs solving. You know, just give me one dashboard, overlay the data so I can manage all my streams in one place. That empowers an artist to be more in control. And, and that's something that we're really excited about is that giving artists the ability to see what they're earning every day and in an at, you know, every day looking at that and understanding you know, why. You know, it, making it so instant, connecting it to that moment is something that even what we've been doing with analytics up to this point in terms of t you know, telling stories with that earnings data, that's months ago because the reporting is months ago. But being able to look at how your account is doing, your cash flow account, and understanding why that is. Because something changed, you know, for the better, for the worse, whatever it is. And being, you know, beat by beat tied into that narrative, um, you know, for me, it's not so much about being obsessed with the dollar signs. It's just, what is that telling you about your career? You know, what's really interesting is a lot of musicians, well, it's not interesting, it's more just a fact, you know, just because you're a musician doesn't mean you're good at math. You know, doesn't mean you want to look at graphs, doesn't mean you want to look at any dashboards. And, you know, that's when it's good to have, like, you know, if you're lucky to have a team, like a manager that will do all that for you. But we're in this, like, DIY era, so if you want to be an artist that then has to put a business hat on, it does take away from, you know, your ability to create, because now you have to focus on the financial components. But with the technology that's coming out right now that everyone's talking about, you'll have the ability to kind of trust in the tech that exists. It'll be formatted in a way that's really easy to recognize and understand. And you guys can all create, like, move forward just knowing that you can just focus on the thing that you love the most, which is making music. So, yeah. Cool. Um, we're getting to the point where we will leave some time at the end for questions. If you have something you want to ask, there's a mic right in the middle of the room. So you're welcome to head that way if you um, have that interest. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that, again, I really want to focus on is, you know, the solutions, you know, as we see uh, more and more uh, sort of uh, attention and energy put into this space, can you guys talk a little bit about, you know, what's to come down the line in 2023, not just what you have now, but sort of the spirit of what you're working towards and, um, you know, uh, what we can all look forward to uh, in the coming you know, months and yet yeah, maybe even the next year ahead? Uh, yeah, I mean, if I had a crystal ball and we're all closing our eyes and we're in 2024, uh, end of the year, um, Breaker has become the operating system um, that the entire record industry sits on top of. Um, every independent artist all around the world um, has tapped into our ecosystem of creators no matter if you have $10, $50, $100, doesn't matter. If you put a song out on Spotify, uh, you're able to quickly, at the click of a button, being able to find an artist and an influencer to be able to promote your content. Um, I believe that that world is coming. Um, I believe, based on the conversations and the LOIs and the infrastructure that we are building, that that is the future. Um, and I genuinely believe that 
independent artists being able to go find those people without having to DM them creates an increased shot on goal towards those kids being able to have their serendipity at scale on those platforms. Um, so to me, um, I'm very proud of what you guys are all doing because that all that stuff, that energy feeds into the platform that I'm building. Um, and it's a labor of love, man. And I just know that I've seen it work for so long now, 18 months of just like millions of dollars flowing through the old system that I believe um, we've thought about it too intensely. We've optimized it too much. Um, and they want it too bad for this not to work. So I believe that every artist will have influences in their pocket by 24. And, and Will, as you know, there's more and more talk about you know, user-centric models and you know, potential price increases uh, for subscription services, uh, what do you think is sticky and what is uh, just going to be a talking point when we look back, let's say, a year from now? I think the price and the payment method has been incredibly sticky. Um, this morning, I was addressing the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva, virtually, of course, and uh, pointing out to them that the 999 price was created on the 3rd of December 2001, not long after 9-11, to resemble the cost of a blockbuster video rental card. That's not a joke. And we're here in March 2023, 22 years later, and it's still 999. So that's got a snap. And then the payment model, the pro rata system where every song's worth the same. You're not allowed to say the word, the C word in America, but I'm gonna say it anyway, communism. Every song is worth the same under the pro rata model. I think that's under pressure too. So if you have a user-centric system, one example of what can happen there is one of Tony's artists or yourself, you could be in a situation where 7% of your fans are generating 70% of your cash and you'll be able to communicate with them. So at the end of 2024, if that type of thing is happening, then that would turn my friend upside down. And, and Toki, just last question for you, and then we'll kick it to uh, some audience questions. Um, the fan side of what Sona is doing is something I'm interested in, and I know, again, um, there's some proprietary stuff you guys are building. I don't mean to pry, but broadly, how do you see um, Sona's role in maybe the evolution of the fan and artist relationship? You know, I think it's really about the data, right? How much do we see and how much do we know? But how much... We, we are privy to more of the data, right? On the musician, on the label side, but not the fans and not the audience. So what if the audience was able to see how their uh, time, money is distributed to the people that they love and appreciate? So in the future, I'll see... I, I think there will be a bit stronger reward system between artists directly with their fans. I think that um, artists artist fans and audiences will feel a greater sense of purpose in knowing that they're directly supporting people that they want. Because we know that a lot of streaming, these streaming services were kind of created to combat piracy. And it was either like, you know, Napster or nothing, right? So when we have the streaming system right now, it due for a refinement. It's due for a facelift, and there's nothing wrong with it because my favorite part about all these streaming platforms is the access to music, and I can find music I would never find any other way, and that's beautiful, but could we think of a system, and this is what Sona's trying to do right now, is what if you had access to all the music in the world like you already do in your pocket, but your artists get, each artist get paid more, and you have that that environment that allows for the ecosystem to grow larger. 
because as a tech company, it doesn't take that much, at least for our company, to operate. A lot of that money can go back to the artists and then feed into creators, feed into influencers, feed into fans. Because what we also see right now, and this is, I'm going on a tangent, is influencers uh, in the music context, right? So what if I have a playlist that is incredibly popular, maybe there's over a million followers of my playlist, I don't make any money off that. But then they should, because you're going and helping all these artists, you're going and you know, creating culture and making uh, waves with people, people are using you for something. So it's trying to find a way that everyone gets compensated without it being like the C word necessarily, you know, like, like you get what you deserve, essentially. I don't think anyone should say the C word. Um, <laughs> we'll kick it to audience questions. Okay, hello. Um, what's what's your name? Uh, my name is Arturo, I'm from Mexico. Nice to meet you. Uh, and I want to ask you, um, if you know or you have a hint of why the financial system doesn't uh, uh, take royalties as a collateral in a, in a normal way. I mean, the streaming uh, has changed the world and um, a recurring income for an artist is, I mean, you can, you can prove it with your statements, and, uh, but if you go to any bank, it's like, okay, that's super cool, you have money all the time, that's cool, where is your house? So I can put that. So is there any reason that I don't uh, see that the financial system don't collateralize the, the, the asset, they don't take an asset? Because it is a super valuable asset and you probably know better, but uh, there is only 500 million people with streaming in the world and we are at billions uh, and pretty soon we are gonna be at the double and uh, we're gonna start to pay again for the music like the, it used to be. Uh, basically now the, the music is, is cheap, so uh, I, I don't see any connection that the financial system take these royalties as, a, as, a, as an asset. Do you have a, any hint? It's, Thank you. It's a really uh, great question, and I think that it says a lot, it speaks volumes that the players who are viewing it as an asset are often within the music industry itself, right? Folks who are looking at recurring income from streaming and using that as a way to justify multiples for IP acquisitions, you know, publishing roll-ups, master buyouts, things like that. And I think, you know, one thing that we certainly hear at Hi-Fi a lot is that the traditional banking system, and now you see more private equity players in the space, and you've seen the headlines over the past couple of years of the folks who are jumping into the market to do those sort of IP uh, deals. But we're hearing from the individual artists who aren't doing seven and eight figure acquisition deals that you know the traditional banking industry doesn't understand their business um, and that's something that you know we certainly are hoping to make our own dent in there was a platform called um, beat bread official i think um, and they're basically trying to take streaming they've like basically like an underwriting algorithm that takes the streaming of even the smallest of artists i think you have to be able to like 10 thousand to fifteen thousand monthly listeners they'll analyze the cash flows and then they'll give you an advance against it 
Um, they raised like $100 million in debt facility to get it done. So I think people are starting to wake up to that. Um, Royal is interesting. Um, they they kind of use Web3 and fans to kind of say like, hey, like let's look at the streaming data of each individual artist and then like sell that to the crowd um, where they all became like individual investors into these songs. I think that model after crypto kind of comes back probably will be something that's interesting. Um, I think it was funny. On my worst day with labels, I'm like, man, Ugh, when Chase finally starts like respecting these cash flows, you guys are just a bank. Like you know, like, it's like people. You know, you can get frustrated with the system. I was just joking, but yeah. No. Yeah. What I'm telling you is that people that own the money, which are banks, they don't see these as a But there's also like there's so. So if you look at like a Elvis or a Madonna or a Whitney Houston, a Michael Jackson, a Nas, a Jay-Z, it's very easy to kind of like predictably like kind of model out those cash flows. If you like maybe that independent artist that went viral on TikTok last year will be super relevant streaming the same way next year. But in a boom bust cycle, is that true? So I think that when you start to think about now I'm going to Goldman mode, but like when you start to think about cash flow, investors care about smoothing right and so like it's either on the higher end of the market they're coming in very aggressively or they're coming on the lower end of the market where the risk is so low that you can arbitrage right so i think that's you can't just blanketly paint music streaming as one uh asset class because the reality is that there's a lot of um variability in terms of the type of cash flow that it is yeah i agree too a lot of music is very speculative just like you know you don't really know. And banks do want things that are secure, predictable, collateral. Yeah. So, yeah. Like a home. Exactly. A home, a home is not going to vary. But you crazy. know Whitney Houston's going to stream millions of streams. You yeah. know Mariah Carey. Every Christmas, like, you get what I'm saying? So the PE every guys Christmas. are like, exactly. <laughs> every Christmas, you know what I mean? So I'm being funny, but you know how Michael Jackson's catalog is going to perform this 20 years of historical data to say X. So that's what causes the divergence. What's up, brother? Hey, how you doing? My name is Brett Anthony out of Orlando, Florida, music producer. First off, I want to say I appreciate you guys coming out here and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Uh, my question is, you had touched on briefly mentioning how Ye or Kanye West, has this big fandom and this big fan base. However, he did enter into the market before we started getting over to this whole streaming side. So there is that with it now. For people that are now coming up, artists and producers of, of that nature, or of that type are coming up nowadays, how are they able to be able to generate that same or similar type of uh, audience to be able to sustain themselves over a long period of time? What do you guys normally do or suggest? Man, you, that was to me, I feel like. Am I biased? All right. It was a little bit to you. Right. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be presumptive. Uh, but nah, I mean, look, Kanye, right? Did you see the documentary? I have not. I don't you got to go watch this documentary on okay. Netflix. He goes... Why can Kevin Lyles tell me I can't be more than a producer? He said it on national television, right? I love Kevin, by the way. But, like, he said that. So the difference between now and then was that if you were a producer like Kanye, to go out into the mainstream, you actually had to get approved by the labels to convert into a songwriter or a singer and to go to the masses. 
The difference now is you can look yourself in the mirror, take the glasses off down in Orlando, and be like, excuse me, I'm going to fuck that. This song's crazy. I'm going on DistroKid. I'm going to come to Breaker. I'm going to give Breaker $1,000. I'm going to get 100 creators, super small. I'm going to trigger the algorithm, and I'm going to go crazy. And, like, that's the difference between that era and this era. So the only difference between, like, making it or not making it is you having that conviction to be like, yo, I'm going to release. Secondly, and he can appreciate this on Spotify, yo, Russ, just beat the algorithm down. Every single month, that man was releasing a record, period. And it wasn't, like, loud at first. And it went bigger and it went bigger. It went and it was the consistency on the algo. So to me, as a producer, as a singer, you actually have the superpower. You know the kids who I feel bad for? I, don't, I actually don't feel as bad for you. I actually feel bad for the kid who doesn't have your technical skill sets to go into a studio and make a song. I have a girl in Louisiana, okay? Her name is Mariana. And literally, Billie Eilish meets Adele, meets Lana Del Rey, but she, she cannot put a song together. She just doesn't have the skills, right? I got like 10 kids like that all around the country that I know for a fact could do it, right? And so I would say that, like, it's literally, bro, it's about going out there and, and just making the songs, bro, and just putting it out there and triggering the algorithm with small marketing budgets and hitting it with consistency, you'll be fine. Because, like, what happens is it becomes like a very lethal concoction of you spending on influencers and pinging the TikTok algorithm, you posting content yourself in the studio, on stage, showing those emotional reactions. The For You page will find you, and they'll find people who like you. But if you're not doing it consistent on the content side, and you're not paying influencers, and you're not putting songs out every month, that formula and that centrifuge doesn't start to take over. Every artist today in this world can break themselves. Full stop. I, I believe that. So hopefully that's helpful. Oh, I agree. Um, I appreciate that 100%. If I can follow yeah, of up. Of course, of course. The only thing that, that um, I find a little difficult is managing time. I have another business completely outside of this and managing time with that, needing to also manage time with content. Yeah. But then that content taken away from creativity because yeah. you're now needing to um, <laughs> devote yeah. a lot of time yeah. and energy and creativity yeah, into the content. I think she's better for that yeah. one. I actually do not like having to make content constantly. I want to make beats. I want to make music. And, you know, I've been now, I guess, professionally doing music and touring for the last, like, 14 years. And so you have this thing with legacy or tenured artists, like pre-streaming artists where it's still, like, iTunes was still a thing, maybe buying an MP3. And so I started off then prior to streaming like services. So I feel like in some way that really helped me because then I had a built-in very loyal audience early on that has kind of followed me through my career until now. And for me, you know, it's always kind of a drag that I have to be like, okay, I have to post something on TikTok now or like I need to do a reel or now photos don't do it. I have to, it has to all be video. And, you know, there's also that, that other side is me as a, uh, a fan of other artists where sometimes you don't want to meet your hero, you know? And now you're just seeing them blasting themselves on the internet and you're like, wow, I liked your music, but then now I don't know, you're kind of weird, you know? Um, and so there's, no, there's not as much mystery behind these artists anymore. Like if Prince was on TikTok all day, would you still like Prince the same way? I'm not sure, you know? So for me, I think that it, I like, you know, to be a modern artist, you do have to play into the algorithm a little bit. But 
Um, I see artists, tons of artists that are big without a big social media presence. And that's a, lo a lot of that has to do with actually touring. So if you like seeing them, like if you think about like the Grateful Dead or like these type of artists where people just go and see them live, they can create their own cult viral sensation that doesn't have to do with the internet. I so, totally agree with that. Yeah. We, we, have time, we have time for one more quick Sorry. question and a quick response and then we have to... Uh, we can squeeze two. Can we do quick, two quick ones? I'll be quick. Two quick ones. Awesome. Uh, my name is Genesis. I had a question for the gentleman uh, at, at Spotify. Um, it wasn't talked about explicitly, but I'm kind of curious how Spotify is thinking about decentralization and, and Web3 and how uh, streaming evolves with uh, Web3. And feel free, anybody else to chime in. Can't really speak for Spotify because I've been out of the ring, sabbatical work in my book. So, but I met Audius yesterday. That was interesting to see a company that was using blockchain as a means to an end to achieving a decentralized model. If crypto collapses, there might be another means to that end. And they were talking about settling up payments within 15 seconds. So I would put, put that one on your map. And then just very quickly, while we're running the clock down, I just want to reiterate what you said earlier, which is the algorithm is the boss. <laughs> if there's one thing I'm going to take back from this trip to Austin on the flight home to London, <laughs> it's that. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Um, the question I'm going to ask is, um, if I haven't asked my question, um, thank you very much for all this wealth of information. I do appreciate it. My name is Chester Wilkins. I'm an ISRC GS1 metadata expert. Mm. I'm here for a reason, to listen. One thing I'm not really hearing too much is um, the issues that we have in the metadata world. If we have problems in the metadata world, then how can we receive mechanicals? So my question to you is, um, if there is a formula in place, and would you all be open to fix that so that the generation, generational wealth, mechanicals, the metadata, all the issues that we've been having in the music industry. How do we go about actually fixing that? Yeah. Real quick, so the way that it works just now is that record labels would come to Spotify, Amazon, streaming services with meticulous files, ISRC files, and an invoice to get paid. Whereas the publishers, to which you are alluding to, come with an invoice and that's it. And that has been going on for 23 years now. And the only way we're going to solve this, in my personal opinion, is if SoundExchange and the Mechanical Licensing Collectors and ASCAP, there's a lot of turkeys voting for Christmas here, just merge, form a global repertoire database where we can finally know who owns what. Taxation without representation didn't work for the Brits when we were in your country, <laughs> and it doesn't work for the music industry today. Sorry, can I? Can I? It's, unfortunately, we no, gotta I'm, wrap there because I just want to be. You, gonna, you, let, let, let me hear you out. Let me hear what you gotta say. What's that? I said, let me hear you out. What you gotta say? Oh no! Because, oh no! Um, what I heard from him coming from another let's, country. Let's sidebar and talk yeah. after because we want to be good guests. Thank yeah. you all for Th being thank great guests. Thank you so much, guests. everybody. Thank you to the panelists Appreciate for their insights. Really, really appreciate it.